Good morning. I can't wait to be back in this room with all of you. It is good to be here today. I don't know whether you know this or not, but every preacher has at least a short list of Bible passages that she hopes she never has to preach on. <laughs> a message could make that list for any number of reasons. Maybe it's just too painful, or maybe she just doesn't understand it, or maybe she's not sure she could ever do it justice. Well, Genesis 22 is on my list, and so of course when Pastor Wes invited me to preach today and I looked up the passages for this week in the church year, Genesis 22 was right there waiting for me. Now let me be clear. After 42 years of hearing this story, it is still painful. And after 25 years of studying and teaching the Old Testament, I'm still sure I don't understand everything about this passage. And after almost a month of preparing this morning's sermon, I know I won't be able to do it full justice. And frankly, this is not the type of sermon that I would prefer to preach through your screen. But at least with only a dozen or so in the room, I might make it through without tears. So this seems like a good place to pray. Lord, as we open your word this morning, send your Holy Spirit to enliven our hearts, soften our spirits, and reveal your saving love so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be and become pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I know that I am not alone in my feelings about this story. I know this because as friends have asked me in the last few days what I was preaching about, and I told them the passage, the response was universal. Oh. <laughs> But for such a difficult story, it sure looms very large in the Christian tradition. It is offered as evidence for Father Abraham's unflinching faith. It is recognized as a defining moment in the story of God's people, and it is held up as a prototype of the very work of Christ on the cross. And it is all of these things in some senses. This is a very important story, and so it deserves reading and rereading and rereading again. Because if it is all those things, we dare not oversimplify it. We dare not tame it. We dare not dull its impact. So, can I ask you this morning will you suspend your familiarity with the story for just a little while with me? Because if we can do that, I think we will meet a God who surprises us. At so many turns, this story is startling. A startling command, a startling obedience, a startling scene of tension interrupted by a startling rescue and all concluded by a startling judgment. And so verse one, and sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now. Later than what? What came before this? Well, this old man who was about to be tested finally had his miracle son Isaac born to his old wife Sarah. 
He had just sent away his firstborn son, Ishmael, and bought a well from a Philistine king, which was a move toward settling down after almost three decades of the nomadic life. He had been following this God all over Canaan, but let's be honest, Abraham's record as a follower was not perfect. He followed God out of his homeland into Canaan, and he believed God's promises about a land and descendants and a blessing of his own, and he embraced the covenant God offered him, even with its rather painful signature on his body. But also, twice Abraham didn't trust God enough to protect him from Pharaoh or Abimelech, and so he gave his wife away to save himself. And once, when he got tired of waiting for his descendants, he went along with Sarah's plan to conceive a baby using the body of her servant Hagar. The postpartum conflict reached such a fever pitch that it was better for Hagar and Ishmael to go live in the desert, which would have been a death sentence if not for God's special care of them. So maybe the decision to test Abraham's faith was warranted in one way or another. Now that Isaac was a little older and things had calmed down again, did Abraham really understand God? Did he really trust God deeply enough? Would God's rescue plan launched through Abraham and Sarah continue in the next generation or would it fizzle out with their deaths? So, Maybe a test was warranted, but this test, really? In verse two, God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And only two verses into this chapter is where my own confusion with God starts to bubble up. I get stuck here. Was God serious or was he just playing with Abraham? Because if he really meant it, that is terrifying. But if he didn't really mean it, isn't that manipulative? Was this the moment Abraham would discover some terrible fine print in the covenant? What is going on here? I don't have a lot of clear answers, and I'm not the first person to try to work through this passage, but I do notice a few things when I read it. First, God really emphasized how much Isaac was cherished at this point when he asked him to be sacrificed. Your only son, he calls him, because now Ishmael was gone. The son whom you love, he calls him. Was that necessary to point that out? Was God trying to make it even more painful? Or was he just helping Abraham count the cost? Or was he hoping to prompt a certain response in Abraham? Second, I noticed that Isaac was to be given as a burnt offering. The sacrificial system that would shape Israel's worship had not been set up yet, but burnt offerings were used throughout the ancient world as an expression of devotion to the deity, not specifically associated with the forgiveness of sin. 
hadn't Abraham already signified his devotion to God by the covenant ceremony and by circumcision and by leaving home 30 years prior? And who would want to renew their devotion to a God who demanded your own child as a sacrifice? Well, lots of questions come out of these verses for me. But here is one place in the story where the ancient world crashes loudly into our own because we know from other passages in the Bible and from the ancient texts of Israel's neighbors that some gods did apparently require or at least accept child sacrifice. In some places, the firstborn child would be sacrificed to ensure that more were born. In others, a child might be killed to ensure military victory or as part of the groundbreaking ceremonies on a new building project dedicated to the gods. Abraham most likely knew of these customs, and his descendants certainly did. In fact, the land that he had been promised was next door to Moab, where the gods Chemosh and Molech were worshipped through child sacrifice. I can't help but think that Abraham probably wasn't as thrown by God's command as we are because it was a known dynamic in his religious world. He certainly didn't protest. And you know, that's another odd thing. Abraham knew how to argue with God. He had argued with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had complained to God about his lack of children, and now God was going to take the only one left? In fact, when Sarah wanted Hagar and Ishmael sent away in the previous chapter, the text says explicitly, quote, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, end quote. And so God promised to protect Hagar and Ishmael. But now, what did this great friend and follower of God say in response to this terrifying and tragic command? Nothing. Crickets. He just got up the next morning and started packing for the hike. This is most often understood as a great act of admirable obedience on Abraham's part. And if blind obedience were the only kind of obedience ever offered by God's human partners in the Bible or ever honored by God in the Bible, then that would be that. But that would be a different God. Given the number of other times that God allowed his beloved children to argue back or to lament, or to remind God of God's own promises, I can't help but wonder what would have happened if Abraham had, in fact, argued with God this time. Surely if he had said, take me, Lord, and leave the child alive, God would also have accepted that as righteousness and devotion. Surely there was more than one way to pass this test. But tragically, I have also noticed that Abraham was not always quick to offer himself if someone else was around to step in for him. And thankfully, God wasn't actually going to accept Abraham's blind obedience exactly as these opening lines 
might lead us to expect. Now, some of you might feel like turning off your live stream by now. I've messed with Father Abraham. Aren't I being pretty tough on him? Do I think I could do any better than he did? Honestly, not at all. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have a patchy record of following God, too. I'm real good at it when it comes easy, or when I'm getting lots of praise and recognition, or when someone else can do the heavy lifting. But ask me to wait for God an agonizingly long time? Ask me to follow even as others scorn me? Ask me to lay down my fear that God will fail me and give up the position and privilege I have been relying on instead? I know my faith needs testing too. And that's actually one of the things that gives me hope here. Because I think we will discover that Abraham's faithfulness isn't actually the final point of this story. I wonder a lot of things as we move into verses 3 through 9. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. I want to know what Abraham said to Isaac about where they were going and why. Did he tell Sarah anything? What did they talk about on that three-day hike? Was Abraham full of dread or full of confidence or some mixture of the two? When he told his servants, we will come back to you, was he just trying to play it cool so no one would suspect what was coming? Or did he really believe that somehow, despite the clear command, God would find a way out of this for him? In verse 6 then, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. When Isaac began to wonder what was going on and noticed their lack of a sacrificial lamb, did he have any inkling of what his father was planning? One minor voice in the Jewish tradition imagines that here Isaac became aware of God's command and began to ready himself as a willing sacrifice in order not to jeopardize his father's righteousness. That seems too easy to me, and it's not an interpretation that got a lot of traction over the years. 
And when Abraham responded, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, was that a statement of astonishing faith? Or was he placating his own fear? I don't know. In fact, so much is left to the imagination in this story that it's one of the most written about passages in the whole Bible. Generations of readers and preachers have tried to fill in the missing parts of the story. I suspect that Christians lean so heavily on the connection to Christ's sacrifice in this story precisely because when we read this story on its own terms, without the later and quite appropriate layers of meaning, the uncertainty and the uncomfortable possibilities are just more than we can bear for too long. So we move to Christ. We could get all the way through the first half of verse 9, still giving Abraham a fair benefit of the doubt. From Isaac's perspective, maybe this was just another adventure with his doting father who seemed a little distracted. And maybe Abraham himself really did believe up to that point that God would not actually take Isaac. But then, with the altar finished and the wood fire built, Abraham started to go through with it. He didn't stop to pray. He didn't plead with God. He didn't look for an animal in the thickets. He tied up his son, laid him on the altar, and raised his knife. This moment in the story horrifies and fascinates me. And it has captured the attention of so many throughout the ages. 400 years ago, Caravaggio painted this moment. Isaac's face is very telling here, I think. What else could he possibly have felt but shock and terror? Dad said God would provide a lamb. Did he really mean me all along? And about 30 years after Caravaggio, Rembrandt took up his own paintbrushes to interpret this moment. Somehow it's even more terrifying to me that we cannot see Isaac's face here. And this is where, as I sat absorbing these two paintings, I came to a screeching halt. Because Isaac's position, what is happening to him in that moment, looks heartbreakingly familiar to me right now. I have seen that look of fear on the face of too many people recently whose faces were being ground into the pavement. And I have heard too many people crying out, I can't breathe. It looks like a powerful man sacrificing a powerless one in the name of duty. Is that Isaac or is that George Floyd? I hope you will hear me. These paintings stopped me in my tracks. A 3,500-year-old story in 400-year-old paintings has somehow crashed right into my world. I can offer no balm to the grief and pain of our black brothers and sisters right now. 
And I won't enter into judgment this morning on my white brothers and sisters because I am guilty of racism too. But I am learning in these days in new ways to feel the pain of those who suffer. And I am convicted by this story of Isaac and Abraham in a way that I never, ever could have predicted. I'm not even going to argue that this is the real meaning of the story of Abraham or the main point. But for today, this is how I am hearing God. For this moment in our life together as God's people, it seems important that we notice how everything ends. God sends an angel to stop Abraham's hand. No matter what I think of God's command at the beginning of the story, whether I ever understand it or not, in the end, God will not let Isaac die. And in the end, the place where this happened is not named. It was required but it was provided. After this, the law of Israel will explicitly outlaw human sacrifice, and the prophets will condemn all who took that path to try to curry favor from gods they did not understand. God does not ever accept the death of one person as righteousness for another, until in the fullness of time, he could lay down his own life as a sign of both his commitment to us and his cure for our sin. It turns out that it is never acceptable for us to sacrifice the vulnerable in order to prove or maintain our own righteousness. Of course it isn't, you're probably saying. What a ridiculous thing to suggest. But that is one of the points of Abraham's own story. For all his faithfulness, for all his leadership, for all his chosenness, he was good at putting others in danger. Do I have the same blind spots? Do you? It was a traumatizing way to teach Abraham this lesson, for Isaac at the very least. And maybe it's no wonder that Isaac and Abraham do not actually spend much time together after this. But as this fragile family stumbled along, getting to know their God, they had to be convinced with every fiber of their being that he was not like the gods they used to know. And maybe only a visceral demonstration of that truth would do it. For our parts, maybe only a difficult story will keep it fresh for generations of readers because it really is that critical to our wholeness as children of God that we learn not to endanger others on our journey with God. And it is a surprisingly common trap. Uh, but our tests will come in other ways, most likely, because of course we would never sacrifice someone else for our own righteousness. But then, why have so many Christian young women been driven to abort their babies to avoid condemnation and ruin? Why have so many victims of abuse been silenced to preserve a pastor's reputation? Why have so many women and children had the wholeness of their personhood sacrificed on the altar of male headship? 
How have I learned exactly how to signal my righteousness to the people I want to be accepted by while staying silent in the face of their blatant or subtle racism, sexism, or nationalism? How has the bride of Christ been so neatly torn in pieces, if not that we have learned not unity and celebration of each other, but to define ourselves in opposition to each other? Yes, I'm a Christian, but not a Catholic one. I'm a Christian, but not a Pentecostal one. Not a reformed one, or a fundamentalist one, or a progressive one, or a republican one, or a democratic one, or a black one, or a queer one. How long, the Lord? hears us say. How long the sacrificed and maligned ones cry, will you, O Lord, forget me forever? In some traditional liturgies of the church, Psalm 13 has been paired with Genesis 22 as the appropriate response to such a difficult passage. So I want to read it for you now. How long, Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I, sing, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now I can imagine these words in Abraham's mouth, if his faith is what is important here. He waited a long time for God's promises to be fulfilled, and they were. But this lament and its final statement of faith also sit quite well in Isaac's mouth. In his utter helplessness, Isaac was rescued from death and lived to trust in God's unfailing love so that when his own wife turned out to be barren, no child was bound up on an altar to beg for fertility. All Isaac did was pray. And when Isaac met King Abimelech, he managed to keep Rebekah out of the king's bed. And when his own sons fought bitterly over his favor and one of them even deceived him, he found it within himself to bless both Esau and Jacob, believing that God would be good to both of them because the grace of God is not a zero-sum game. There is always enough for all of us. So the test turns out to be not whether we can come up with a worthy sacrifice. It is not how much we can stand to give up. Abraham already had Isaac in position, and he knew some gods at least accepted children as a sacrifice. In the perverse logic of a culture like that, a ram may not be good enough if a child was available. And after all, God didn't say he had sent the ram. What if Abraham had gone ahead with Isaac anyway, like the judge Jephthah would do with his daughter many generations later? No. The test turns out to be, rather, will we accept the sacrifice God provides? Will it be enough for us, or will we keep on performing 
to earn God's love. The test turns out to be not how strong is your faith, but how faithful is your God and how deeply do you trust his provision. We are invited to trust God enough so that when we lay aside our understanding and learn to hear the cry and notice the fear of the ones bound all around us, we are invited to believe that as we join them in their lament, in their cry to God, we will not be condemned, but will discover that their trust in God's provision is well placed. We are invited to let go of the merely habitual or impressing markers of our righteousness in order to unbind the next generation and to learn that the Lord will not only provide the seal of our commitment to him, but also will judge us with compassion and forgiveness. We are invited by the psalmist to learn that to lament and to cry out with the oppressed is no failing but leads us to discover that God's love is unfailing, that the one who provides the lamb is good indeed and worthy of our trust and obedience. So where do we go from here? How do we go from the fear or the knowledge that we have endangered others in pursuit of our own righteousness to the way of Christ, who proclaimed that greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. How can we become like Christ in this way? How can we become like Harriet Tubman, a conductor on the Underground Railroad who repeatedly risked her life to rescue 70 people from slavery? Or how can we become like Patrick Hutchinson, a black Londoner attending a Black Lives Matter protest two weekends ago, who plunged into a gathering mob to carry a white counter-protester, his enemy in the flesh, to safety, on his back? The very good news is that we do not have to make this change on our own. Like Abraham, let us start with the ways that we do trust God and let him lead us on from there. Will you pray with me? Will you bow your heads where you are and listen for the Spirit of God? Have we not trusted Christ to save our souls? Can we then trust him to soften our hearts, to gently and firmly lead us to a deeper sense of his love for the suffering? Can we trust that having helped us recognize our own failings, his spirit will lead us through forgiveness and strengthen us for the work of growth Lord, have mercy and remind us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. You will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.